0: and welcome to NSTA, The Bus Stop. This is the official podcast of the National School Transportation Association. I am Kurt Mackison, Executive Director, and with me, again, a previous guest, Dennis Roche. He's co-founder of Burbio, and Burbio is essentially a data tracking consortium. So Dennis, welcome back to NSTA, The Bus Stop. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. I can't recall specifically when we first got together on the podcast, but all throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we've been, you know, talking about uh, trends and, you know, uh, the information that you all have been tracking at Burbio and, you know, two months or two years, I'm sorry, into the pandemic. And now we're two years plus into the pandemic because I start started at March twenty twenty. We're now into May of twenty twenty two. So by any measure, we're kind of twenty-six months, you know, into this pandemic. And we still talk about surge in COVID cases, Dennis. And so I, I guess you're still kind of tracking that. And tell us, you know, what you've seen and kind of how this is hopefully different than it was in March of twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, it's very different than
0: 2020 by a long shot. Basically, over the last year and a half,
1: you've seen students return to the classroom. There are still some students that may be a part of virtual academies, but they're no longer conducting virtual at the same time students are in person. All students are in school every day. And really where COVID mitigation has gone is it's gone to, if you're sick, stay home. There are, and and depending on if you've got COVID, you're going to stay home for a certain They're no longer quarantining based on what was called exposure. So for a long time during this transition, you had education where kids would be in school or teachers as well. And if they were around someone with COVID, they had to preemptively stay home as a precaution in case they had it and get tested a bunch of times before they were allowed to come back. That doesn't happen really anymore. So a lot of testing different parts of the country. And when they are testing positive, they do have to stay home. But in general, that has dramatically minimized the disruptions. What we've seen since, I think we spoke over the winter, where the Omicron wave was coming through. And you just had a lot of people who got COVID during that period. So you had schools, some of the schools closing for a day or two or going virtual for a week because they were running out of staff who were, and bus drivers were certainly one of those, when I mean by staff, I also mean bus drivers to be able to open the schools. But now you don't have that as much. What you do now have is just some of the precautionary stuff like masks and mask recommendations are being tweaked by some districts. But in general, everybody's back in school and we've seen very, very few closures
0: happening during this wave. Now you did just mention in your response you know, about the the masking. And then I see according to your most recent update, only two percent of the top five hundred school districts are requiring masks. So is that something I, I guess what I have a twofold question for you. Is that something that we think will now be the trend moving forward? Is that there'll there'll be a removal of these mask requirements in schools? And then secondarily, you know, based on some of the information that I think we've we've started to gather do you think that those mask requirements you know, were helpful in any respect in keeping kids in school?
1: Well, so, so two answers. One, one answer, we might see medium term, and by that I mean into the fall and the winter, we might see more, the, the percentage of schools with mask mandates at some point go above 2%. I don't think you're going to go back to 30, 40, and 50% anytime soon. Perhaps next winter, if you have a big uh, wave of some sort of COVID variant that, that a lot of people are getting. But in general, the, the it's subsided. What we're seeing is related to the masks right now. And again, it's only a small part of the country that is that is, that is reaching, uh, crossing the CD three CDC thresholds for high transmission of, of COVID. What we're seeing is superintendents of school districts and health departments, strongly recommending masks but not requiring them so it's like the language has changed from required a mask to not requiring a mask and sort of recommending a lot of districts even when they got rid of their mask mandate said we'd still recommend it just as a precaution and it was sort of this it was hard to make uh it was hard to make out how what percentage of students would really wear a mask once it was taken off. But now things have sort of changed. So if you're a parent in, in, in these districts, like a lot of them are in the Northeast right now, and we expect to see some in California, you're going to get an email from the superintendent saying we, we're not requiring your child to wear a mask, but we strongly recommend they do so. You know, what what effect that will have on behavior in terms of passing? You know, it's hard to say for sure. I suspect a big group of parents that the superintendent's going to send them a, sends them a letter like that is going to you got to send the kids with a mask when they when they're told to. So that's the first part. you're gonna see we're seeing a little bit of a growth right now in mask mandates. Certainly for the balance of the year, we don't expect to see a large increase. It's hard to tell what will happen by next fall and winter because it's, it's, a lot of it's driven by COVID rates. And then what we are seeing though is is this mask advisory type thing where, it, which which may be what we see a lot of next year. Which is you know we're not gonna bother doing mandated masks, but we're gonna advise them. As far as your second question, the way we view the prisms of ma- prism of mask is less about, you know, there's a lot of studies on mask efficacy, and they purport to say, they, they, they say different things. We kind of stay out of that as to whether they were effective from a health standpoint. What we look at is from an operational standpoint, and essentially masking as a tool last winter in particular, was a very effective school tool for schools to stay open because the CDC had different quarantine guidelines if you were wearing a mask. And so masks became this way for districts that were going to quarantine every time someone had COVID uh, to keep the schools open because essentially there was almost no quarantining necessary if everyone was was, was wearing a mask when when, when they were around someone who later tested positive for COVID. COVID. so we tend to think of the masking policies as something that effectively kept schools open and that's not certain to say whether or not they flow transmission or not we stay out of that discussion we just look at it for how it affected school operations
0: gotcha and that kind of leads us into into my next question you know burbio at its core is a data i don't know acquisition service is that how you would say it
1: yeah data service we basically we're a business
0: intelligence service that uses data
1: to help companies and policymakers make better
0: decisions yeah. and and so with that now there's i mean there's a whole slew of of data that that we can track now. One thing that you guys have been tracking is the elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund spending. and that was you know interesting it was one of the programs done the high-def pandemic to, you know, assist schools with either remote learning or keeping kids, you know, in the classrooms. And it's, you know, interesting that you're you're tracking this. What have you found, Dennis, with respect to what the school districts have been spending these funds on?
1: Yeah, so the background on this is that a year, a little over a year ago, uh, a $1.9 trillion stimulus called the American Rescue Plan passed in the March of 2021 under the Biden administration. There have been some Stimulus was passed when Trump was president that sent some money to schools, and the acronym was Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief. And by the time you got to the, 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 the the Biden plan of the ARP, it's called the Emergency Plan. They were it was the third one, and it was the biggest money. It was 122 billion sent to K-12 public schools across the country, and it was referred to uh, co- colloquially as S3. And S3, 110 billion of that 122, 90 percent was given straight to local school districts, which are known as LEAs. I think I'm done with the acronyms now. Local Education Authorities. They got the money directly. And, and, and it went you – in know, other words, the state couldn't put it in a coffer and then turn it around and redistribute it. It was distributed on the basis of Title I, and it was a relatively clean execution, meaning the districts did have to take some guidance from the state as to how they wanted to spend it. But there was lots of flexibility, and they published the plan. So last fall we started documenting these plans, as they showed up on school websites and in some cases at the state to show what districts were spending money on. And it is, and 20% of the money has to go to, to directly. The only thing in the statute around what they need to spend it on is, is uh, learning recovery. And the balance has uh, some flexibility on it. But the spirit of it is to basically keep get schools open, keep them open, and to assist with school recovery. What we are found finding is that about well over 20% of the districts have 25% of the districts. We, we currently tabulate 4,400 plans, 4,400 district plans that have $80 million in it They make up over 70% of the student population across all 50 states. So we've we, looked we at a lot of these things. And transportation is mentioned as a line item in over 25% of the plans. Now, that can that, that varies widely in terms of amounts. Most of those amounts are small in the four figures, five figures, and low six figures, but there are some bigger spending going on. And in terms of what the kinds of examples, or I'll give you some examples of the kind of stuff that we are seeing in our districts. You're seeing bus driver recruitment and retention being a big issue. You're seeing of transportation used for food service to homes, as well as even mobile uh, units for uh, education, Your mobile learning labs are referred to as. There's cameras being put in the buses. There's bus Wi-Fi. Uh, there's parent. Tra- there's transportation vans to supplement various forms of programming that they do. So there's a lot of that. Um, some districts have taken busing in-house, and they've purchased district. They've purchased for that and some of them have replaced. It used it to replace older fleets with uh, newer fleets. Typically, they always highlight the fact that newer fleets have better ventilation. So it, it's it's really to, to the, the, this, the way in which I talk about obviously addressing the labor shortages uh, around bus drivers is one of the things that has been a common theme. So we see a bit of that. Upgrading air quality. And then in the same way that virtual learning one of the I don't know, we'll call it we'll call it a benefit, and one of the things about virtual learning is it'll, it it created some flexibility or some some tactics that districts will use even when everyone's back in the classroom. I think that they're using a little bit of the transportation money to make their the uh, the way they reach their communities a bit more mobile. Uh, no pen intended. So by by creating uh, things like mobile learning labs and mobile food trucks and things like that. So and then of course we you know just. Buses that take kids places, so it's a, it's a it's a wide variety of things being spent in the category that we're seeing, and it's uh, over twenty percent is a lot. That's a that's a that's a that's a high percentage. There are very few categories where that get tagged with, at over twenty percent because there's like we have like a hundred categories, and transportation is one of the more frequently mentioned and rather rather identified uh, spending categories, even as some of the dollars are. On the smaller side, because they may only be adding some personnel or things like that.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I think one of the manifestations of the pandemic is the next generation of students won't be able to feel the glee of having a snow day. Right? We're just going to quickly yeah. transition to virtual, you know, learning. Well, I guess the teachers will like yeah, that it. that is
1: well. That is one of the things that. What we saw in different parts of the country, they have snow days. In California, some of them, they have smoke days when there's fires. Right. So right. we actually, I think there's still going to be so – there were some districts during the winter that said they had a snow day. They were calling it a snow day, but it really wasn't a snow – like it was not, not snowing <laughs> in a couple of cases. We thought about whether we should call that out, but it was more of a bureaucratic <laughs> – and the bureaucratic is not the right word – it's more of an administrative technique – to deal with the stress created by COVID rates. So they're not right. literally going to have, they're not going to literally have the snow day. If there's a little snow day, they'll do virtual. The, you might have more preemptive virtual days based on the chance of snow, but they're going to have this new thing, which is, you know, essentially COVID days. And that's going to be its own phenomena that might continue, but it'll still be plugged into the same mix of, Flex days that have different names depending on what parts
0: of the country the school is in. One of the things that uh, we hear, at least anecdotally, Dennis, you know, is is the fact that uh, this, you know, some families have transitioned to homeschooling. You know, is there a way that y- you guys, consider you the data experts, have been tracking enrollment numbers, and, and do you see kind of any movement in this direction? You know, it's very the states in the last six
1: weeks have started publishing their enrollment numbers for this year, and we have started compiling them. Uh, and there are uh, states that have increased enrollment versus year ago, places like Arizona, South Carolina, and Florida. And then there are uh, places where it's declining. It's and we've been starting to look at it on a district by district basis. And I think that one of the things that's it's it's hard to say the it's hard to put it it's too difficult to put a number on homeschool at this very very moment. What we have noticed is city districts. So so the National Center for Education Statistics, known as NCES, groups school districts into four big buckets. They're called locale, city, suburb, town, and rural. And town is sort of exurban, like pretty far from a city but not quite rural. So those four buckets. Nationally, cities uh, have declined, and they, and in any individual state, they've declined quite a bit. That's where enrollment is. And so suburbs and the other three locales have actually shown some increase. Depending on the state, it it varies. And you know, you have uh, suburbs in California, for example, have also lost enrollment. So you've seen a sort of a movement away from certain types of districts, and, and it appears that there's been a the districts that were more virtual where COVID mitigation was the the highest were the ones that lost the most students, is what we've observed. It's not completely universal. There are variations there. Um and I think that's that is sort of the biggest issue. And then the issue of homeschooling, I think, is out there. It's hard to get a number on that, particularly given how fluid uh, the enrollment numbers are. They've just been announced, and it'll take some time to get to, to get that information. So we, we actually did start compiling enrollment literally as the states were disclosing it, which is not something that has been typically done in the market. So we, we've got it as much real time as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, which just, Dennis, brings me to one last question for you, and it's something that I I deal with in a lot of cases. And that's somebody from the media comes in and says, oh, we've kind of seen anecdotally through news reports that X, Y, and Z is happening. You know, kind of, can you comment on that? And, you know, I just caution them for, for two reasons, but I'd like your perspective on this. And that's one, it, it takes a while to accumulate enough d- data to, to kind of cull through and make sense of things, you know, you, you know, one, and then there's also a lag time in terms of, you know, acquiring data that has to be factored in. So this, you know, acquiring data isn't specifically done in real time. You know, we're charting last month or two months ago or three months ago, you know, rather than it happening, you know, right, you know, today and, and, you know, we're able to capture that tomorrow. So in, in terms of, you know, people understanding what, you know, what you do, you know, how would you explain the importance of, you know, capturing the data? and then analyzing it properly.
1: So yes, we, we tend to be we tend to be against anecdotes because depending on where you're drawing them from, they may or may not rep- be representative. Now, <clears throat> at some point if there's enough of them and they're broad enough, they start to be you can start to at least call them a trend. But what we do is is our whole thing is to collect data in a way that's comprehensive and national, but also obviously local we want it to be actionable and relevant, and, and and fast. Now, the those are a lot of boxes we're trying to check. We take typically information that is either completely unstructured, and what that that's a fancy word of saying that it's someone just wrote a PDF and put it on a website or published a budget that's kind of hard to translate unless you actually sit down and retype it. Uh, we take unstructured information and we create structured information out of it that clients, policymakers, et cetera, can use for evaluation. And and sometimes we're, we're trying to pull, we pull in government information where it's the most up-to-date and the most accurate. Enrollment would be a good example, but we try and pull that in. Uh, and even sometimes we have to clean that. Like a lot of enrollment stuff is just put in a spreadsheet on a website, which if you're a resident, it's like it's like a million lines or something like that, right? And what are you going to do with that? Well, we take that information and we assign it to a district and we, we create it so that clients can use it. So so some of it's out there in the government. Sometimes it's just at the district level. And so our whole philosophy, though, is to not rely on anecdotes, is not to only talk to certain big districts. Typically, what we were we were a bit new to education. We've been at this for two years now. So we've been at it for a while and we've read thousands of ESSER plans and spent tens of thousands of hours looking at the district websites. So we feel like we're pretty far up to speed. But when we came in from the outside, we kind of noticed there was a lot of like talking to the same big school districts about what was going on. And they had their own experiences, but that's not representative of the whole country. So we try and be fast, representative. So when I say national, it's not so much about The whole state of Texas, it'll be like the different parts of Texas. It'll cover uh, locally, um, but not just the big cities everywhere. So our whole philosophy is to keep leaning really hard into, and school spending, the extra spending was a great example. I think there were two big policy issues we were able to address during COVID at Burbio. One, we were able to start putting numbers around whether schools were open and where they were open and why. And we were way ahead of that. We did that because our target customer was someone who was a business looking for the economic effect of schools, but we did that and really nobody else did it. There were some other trackers that came out deep into the spring, but we were the only company that did it and we're proud of that. The second piece would be the sr three plans. It was a lot of money going out the door. There were a couple of stories written around, oh, so-and-so spending it on you know, game boys for the kids or whatever. It was like, oh, the money's being wasted. We went in and we documented what's being planned and spent. And there's plenty of discussion to be had around that. And I'm not saying it's all being done right. That's not us. But we've, we put numbers on it and we framed it. So, And we, we did a little bit of that same thing with enrollment, honestly. But just like going to government websites, there's a huge spike in ninth graders because essentially they were held back in big parts of the country because they didn't make academic progress. We discovered that. And we're going to continue to do that. So our whole idea is to try and get. We can't answer every question. Some of the some of the stuff you probably get asked, is like couldn't measure it. You can't measure it. You can't figure it out. It's it has to. It's going to be a little bit anecdotal, but we're going to try and put measurement uh, on. It's not always perfect. Meaning meaning sometimes it can be it can be hard to get uh, a complete levels of the details, but it gets you. It kind of it kind of breaks through the anecdotes and breaks through the fog, and you can get ahead of trends. And for us, we want to apply, that. we're basically applying techniques that are used almost in every other part of the economy, trying to apply that to education as well.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then a lot of great information. If folks want to find more on Burbio, where can they go to find that information?
1: Well, uh, you can certainly email me at Dennis at Burbio.com, And if you just type Burbio School Opening Tracker into your Google, into your into a into a search engine, you will land on our tracker page and you can go from there. Dennis at Burbio.com is my two ends is my email. And uh, yes yeah, so we work with companies and policymakers across for a wide variety of industries who are just kind of anything, anybody's affected by school operations?
0: Great. Once again, our guest at NSDA, the bus stop, Dennis Roche. He's co founder of Burbio and that uh, data service. Dennis, always a lot of great information. Probably have you back on as we return to school sometime in August, but uh, appreciate you taking a few minutes to update us on the latest statistics you see from around the country.
1: Awesome. Thanks a so lot.